Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And I think we can't really start this episode without mentioning uh, what is happening today. Um, that is the return of the final season of Game of Thrones. I actually don't think there's been as much anticipation about anything ever. And I am I am having a Game of Thrones party tonight to view it. And I'm really excited. I've also rewatched all of Killing Eve as well, because Killing Eve season two has also come out. So um, both really great shows. Killing Eve is so clever. Like the second time around, you pick up different things that you didn't, like it, it just went over your head the first time. And um, it's really clever and by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So I'm a big fan of hers. Who, fun fact, is going to be quote unquote polishing the new Bond film script. Oh, cool. Which I think is fantastic news. Yeah. Um, I binge watched the entirety of Fleabag season one and season two. Fab. In the last however many days. It's very easy to binge watch because the episodes are only about, what, 25 minutes mm. or something like that? that's very clever to do that, not to saturate it's, it too much. Yeah. But I can't believe how much she manages to get in into each episode. Mm. It's so clever and it's so crafted. Where have you got to in Fleabag? I am on the last episode of the first season, so I binged watch that in like two days. You're going to love season two. Season two will take just an evening and you can just go through the whole thing. People said that season two was better. Yes, definitely better. You're going oh, wow. to encounter the cool. sweary priest who is potentially one of my favourite characters ever seen on the BBC. Great. The other things to mention, I went to see All About Eve, um, which was a national theatre live screening all across cinemas. Um, and this is where I just... Our, whole, our talk that we did last week about relationships in the digital age, I thought about it quite a lot while I was watching it because I knew that you were doing the same. And then there was everyone in the theatre. And it was just so cool, this connective screening of such a brilliant play to so many people and how we could all enjoy it at the same time through technology. I just thought that was so cool. Um, but the play itself was fascinating on the impact of aging and fame on women and particularly the kind of, uh, the, the way that actresses can be turned into idols and then they're kind of frozen in their youth and then they don't know what to do when they're growing older. And we always talked about that in my English class, actually, where people who died young, like Marilyn Monroe being a prime example, was... Diana. Yeah, Diana being another. These beautiful women and men. Grace Kelly. Yes, Grace Kelly would be another example. Yeah. They get... Not so much with men, though. I feel like men... <clears throat> I'd say still, James, still James Dean iconic... was the other example that we looked at. Yeah, true, um, true. And then they're just sort of worshipped as these like youthful gods and goddesses for the rest of mm. entirety because they're frozen in that youthful state mm. and i have also listened to after so many months of knowing about it uh, where should we begin with esther perel who is a sex therapist and couples therapist and who records sessions that she has with her couples that come to her for therapy and I'm so sorry that I've taken so long to come and listen to this podcast. It's so good. It's just such an insight into human relationships, both romantic and and of and friendships as well. Because so many good, Definitely. good romantic relationships are founded on friendship, and you see that playing out. And also, like the ones, the the ones, the relationships that have infidelity, um, 
in them and, 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 and really exploring why that happened um, and how you possibly move on from it and heal from it. And as a, as a younger person, I always was like, oh my God, you know, someone cheats on me, that's it, like, done, over. Like, and, and, and as you get older, you just realise that that's just, it's just it's more, far more complicated than that, yeah. especially when you have a shared family mm-hmm. and a home and that there could be a breakdown in, in both of your communications and both of your relationships and it's not just, there's never just one party to blame. Yeah. And she talks um, about how that's the a new modern shame that if the woman chooses to stay... Yeah then that so few people will be able to wrap their heads around it and she'll find, I think, yeah. people struggle to empathise with that because they think, well, you can leave. Why aren't you leaving? Well, Miranda and Steve are a good example of that in Sex and the City, aren't they? Oh, yeah, wow. that's such a great storyline. Yeah. Have you been watching mm. lots of Sex and the City? I have, yeah. <laughs> One of my friends and I, we share, like, Now TV and Netflix. Mm-hmm. So... That's a good idea. Sex and City is like on Now TV and oh, it's just dangerous. <laughs> it's so good. Also, we should say that this is our first episode recording where Georgia is in London and I'm in Edinburgh. So if there are any technical hitches and glitches, that's why. But hopefully it will all go smoothly. The first figure that we're going to be talking about today is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. She has held this position since 1993 uh, and was appointed by President Bill Clinton. She was born in Brooklyn in 1933 and went on to study law at Harvard, uh, along with her husband, Martin Ginsburg, who she had met while doing her undergrad at Cornell. While she was at university there, she had a two-year-old child that she was looking after, and her husband uh, fell ill with cancer. So she managed to complete her own degree, essentially help her husband complete his degree Mm. and look after her baby, which that whole period of her life, I'm just in total awe of how she managed to make that happen that's crazy isn't it and then when they had graduated her husband was working in new york as a tax lawyer she found that she couldn't get a job in any of the law firms mainly because she was a woman but also because she was a jew and she was outwardly discriminated against despite being top in her class um she then ended up taking on a case for Charles M. Moritz, who was a man who wasn't able to receive benefit because he was a man, essentially. And if a um, if a woman had been in his position and had been the primary caregiver of his mother, they would have received the benefit. Mm, a single man, essentially, because he wasn't married, he was being discriminated against. It was an interesting case of gender discrimination, which she could see that people might be more willing to listen to it because it, in fact, affected a man. But then it had a kind of ripple effect. That was really... I like that. It was interesting. Yeah. Because then they could use that in reverse. Exactly. So it was a very clever, strategic and wider way of working for equality for all people which has been her her life's work. And also, just a fun fact about the Supreme Court. So what the Supreme Court is, is a collection of nine justices um, who make up the Supreme Court, and that's the final level of appeal that you can have in a federal or civil case. 
um, a federal case is a case um, between an individual and the US Constitution. So you're arguing that something in the US Constitution is wrong or unjust. And a civil case is between two individuals. Um, and what happens is then you're, you take those cases to the courts of the state that you live and then you can take that to the next level, which is the Supreme Court, which is often where, why there are so many controversial, politically driven cases that go to the Supreme Court. Each justice is also very politically driven. So um, one of the reasons why there was so much backlash against Brett Kavanaugh is now there's there's like seven Republican judges and two Democrat um, and that will affect the outcome of certain rulings um, because of obviously their of their political uh, opinion. And Ruth RBG is Democrat. So everyone is very, <clears throat> I think, tentative as to whether she will stay on the Supreme Court. And I think that she will. Uh, I feel like it's pretty likely that Trump will get elected next time around. So I think she's going to hold out um, until there's a Democrat in power before she resigns. Mm, especially considering that she's 86 years old. I know, and like broke um, her shoulder last year and had pneumonia and has had to take time off. She's survived cancer as well. Yeah. And she still does all her (laughs) press-ups. So impressive. She can do more press-ups than me. (laughs) So this this film, On the Basis of Sex, which came out earlier this year, is directed by Mimi Leader and written by Daniel Stiepelman, who is the nephew of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um... Yeah, it's it's a it's a feminist film for and shows the importance of yeah. equality for everybody, and it goes into the intersection of race and sex, mm. which I also think was not not handled with as much nuance as I think that there could have been, but is very topical right now. I mean, intersectional feminism in that you look at people's sexuality, um, the colour of their skin, all of these different elements of our identity and how they build Mm. up into one person. That is a huge talking point at the moment. And considering that this was started Mm. eight years ago, this film on the basis of sex, it's interesting to see how they become so much more relevant. Yeah, It makes me think, actually, what are the films being written now and what is the world going to look like when they come out? Mm, so true. So true. Because mm. a lot of films, you know, take years and years and years to make, especially ones that mm-hmm. are politically, you know, can be politically fueled. Um, and, you know, if we think about even three years ago from now, we didn't talk about sexual harassment as much as we do now um, because of all the Me Too stuff. Absolutely so, not. No, pre-Me Too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what films and, and, and things will will come out in the next couple of years exploring those issues and, and, and looking at other cases as well. I thought one of the funniest fil- uh, scenes in the film was when the dean of Harvard has this dinner uh, for, um, I think, some of the top students and he goes around and he explains I think it's called the women's dinner. I think it's it's Oh it's the women's dinner exclusively he, for the women. He was he was literally like, Why do you all think that you're here and you're taking this place away from a man? Um you're so all so lucky at Harvard at Law Harvard. School. And um and it's just so condescending and it's so funny because he lords himself as this person who oh you know I, I made sure that women were able to come to Harvard and I gave them this opportunity like aren't they so lucky 
etc etc and is just horrific and patronizing about it um and it was really funny because all the women gave their you know their answer um and and they kind of weren't taken seriously at all and, and she gets up ruth ruth the character of ruth gets up and just said you know i'm just i just want, really want to know what my husband is doing and i just care so much about him and what he's learning that i, I wanted to do it myself <laughs> She's always Completely got such great answers for things. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> what, what comes across in the documentary RBG that I've watched um, earlier today after I saw On the Basis of Sex, and they work quite well together. They're very different. One of them is, you know, On the Basis of Sex, very big mainstream film combines kind of imagination, imagination with the facts, and it's a kind of artistic interpretation I guess in some ways but this documentary is much more it's focused on interviews it goes through different cases that she won and the development of the whole of the American law system as a result of her work really um but one of the things that comes across again and again when people are talking about her is the fact that she does no small talk (laughs) and she goes straight to the point (laughs) and how her husband Marty who passed away in 2010 um he was the one who was always the joker and he uh had such a great sense of humor and that they weren't actually very similar but they worked incredibly well as partners yeah do you think that sometimes it's overplayed the support of a husband in the way that we wouldn't necessarily overplay it if you see you know we talk about great men having great wives which is true all of them do and it's not all of them do and it's also true that great women have great husbands. Yeah. But do you think that sometimes the the emphasis that they're given is different on account of oh, their gender, ironically? Huge. We never talk about what... Like, we never... We interview a big Hollywood actor or we interview a CEO or we're talking to... And we don't ever ask them about, I don't know, their wives or their kids or anything about that. But if we mm. do with a woman, it's all the emphasis is... So how do you balance it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I was listening to a podcast I, th- I think it was a podcast and they were saying how it's quite easy in some ways to be a good father because the bar is so much lower than it has been for women that's so true and, that's so true and that if people if they do a, you know some cooking and then they change some nappies that still can be seen as so radical yeah, that that too much emphasis is given to it. Although I'm not saying that it's, you know, I think it's great to celebrate it, but equally it should be done on equal terms. I was actually involved in a really Um, interesting debate um, at work about one of my colleagues is pregnant and she basically made the argument that when it comes down to it, all decisions about the child is made by the mother and it should be made by the mother, essentially, when when it boils down to it. And I, I felt like, the need to sort of look at it from both because I feel like that's that is a little bit unfair to dads mm. who oh, I think it's so have unfair. all the best intentions and also I'm, I'm but like but like but really she was but she struggle was, with decisions I'd want it she, to be both right right and that's fine but she was making the argument like a woman can't just walk away like a woman carries the child goes through the pregnancy has the baby and essentially mm. a man could just leave at any time technically yeah and a woman can't although i think but, again i think that's another taboo that has been explored in recent theater mm. did you hear about the play that Gemma arterton 
wrote, I think. It was a short film that she wrote. No, I haven't. Um, and this is the story of a woman leaving her children and oh. the shame and yeah. society's reaction to That's it. And I think it's something really important to talk about because, mm-hmm. again, it's a double standard. Totally. So what was your favourite moment of the film on the basis of sex? Oh, when she's preparing for the case and they're doing the muting, the, the muting uh, practice in the living room and it's really, really bloody tough. Like, they're basically doing a mock trial um, and trying to throw all the possible... Lawyers do this stuff all the time. Um, yeah, it's called mooting. And you're basically you're basically trying to prepare for every kind of situation that could happen um, in the real thing. Um, and she just didn't... It was just difficult to watch, but it, it was... She just didn't give up, didn't give up. It was just like determined, 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 determined. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, and when she's in, in that trial and all the, the, me- the three met, the three justices who are men just don't take her seriously. And you can just, you're just rooting for her the whole time. And it was like, come on, come on, come on. You can do it. Yeah. That was my sort of, my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, having read some interviews with Ruth herself, having watched the film and she's talking about the kind of accuracies of it, I think that the the stumbles weren't necessarily but how were, it was but there in, were, there were, in there real life. There would have been life. many stumbles over a long, long, long period of time, whether it was yeah. the initial trial, they just condense it into like one thing like they yes. wouldn't even have just one trial for that case they would have had like pre-trial they would have like done yeah lots of different, yeah yeah, like, yeah. Cases so that's true that and she hadn't had that training because she hadn't been accepted into a law firm um mm, i know which is so ironic like she's a mm-hmm. lawyer but she can't practice because she won't get hired for her ge- because of her gender but she also needs to yeah. go and represent and then she's fighting client. back against yeah. him mm. and actually something that um i read that was potentially her motivation or contributed to her motivation for why she was so passionate about this was because of the injustice that her mother had faced, um, who was an incredibly intelligent woman. They had a very close relationship, Mm. but sadly she passed away when Ruth was in high school. Um, And her mother had had to work when she was 15 to support her brother through college. So, again, and that gender disparity had been built in from her own family and then she would have seen it so much surrounding her and I think actually my favorite moments of that on the film on the basis of sex is involved her daughter Jane and how they could kind of the the tensions between them and then how they came together um under their passion for making the world more of an equal place um, and I think the father-daughter relationship was also explored with so much poignancy and tenderness. And I don't think that either of those relationships are seen enough with that much depth. I know. It was so good, the way that they explored that. The, the mm-hmm. yeah, father-daughter. More one. so than Ladybird. I thought that the way that this film did mother-daughter relationship was more... It was more compelling for me to Definitely. watch than Lady Definitely. Bird had been. Because there was, because there was underneath it, there was a, there was a bond and a, um, and they both actually really respected each other. They were just sort of clashing in yes. terms of differences in mm-hmm. generation and, and you know, it's just you just do clash with your parents when you're growing up. Um, 
because you're sort of coming into your own ideas and your own thoughts. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. That was really good. The second figure that we are going to be talking about this week is that, on average, 200,000 people in the UK will go into work every day on a hangover. Um, and yeah, I think I chose this statistic because I just thought, oh God, that's a bit shocking and a bit confronting. And actually, I've probably gone into work hungover many, many, many times. Uh, I guess the the degree of hangover is one uh, of context. I don't think I've ever been at work where I've been so hungover, like those sort of like night out hungover, where you, where you can't breathe or move and your pulse is racing, but definitely feel feel really ropey. Um, and it's awful. Mm. Um, but it also sort of it also sort of highlights the, the sort of drinking culture that we have in the UK. And actually, we drink far too much uh, as a society generally, myself included. People just like to drink. <laughs> Life is hard. Life is hard. People like to drink. Do you think that's one of the main motivations of why people drink? Totally. Totally. That's why I think there are loads and loads of, of um, what is it, the functioning alcoholic. Because sometimes people just learn these they learn those behaviors in order to cope with things and they just never it doesn't actually affect them that 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 detrimentally and so then they just continue although i think it actually affects a lot of people quite badly but no one admits it because it's quite socially acceptable and exactly and that and this stat this stat reflects that it's sort of abnormal not to drink in some ways totally but speaking of hangovers generally um one of the reasons why you can get such a bad hangover is by mixing alcohols. So each alcohol, whether it's gin, vodka, wine, all have different types of impurities. Often you hear them referred to as like sulfites. Um, and there's a theory that, you know, the more types of impurities you have, the harder it is for your body to sort of get rid of them and get over them, which is why your hangover can be bad. Also, one of the reasons that you don't sleep very well is because there's so much sugar in alcohol. So you've had, by consuming that much sugar, you basically just have a blood sugar crash um, and causes you... Sometimes, you know how people get up really early randomly for no reason? Um, that happens to me all the time. I get up at seven and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so hungover and I'm probably still drunk. But again, it's that sugar, it's that sugar crash. That also is why you eat a lot when you're hungover or drunk as well, because you're because your blood sugar's so low. Interesting. I think you find that, Shah, don't you? Yeah, I eat a lot when I'm hungover. Yeah. And I like Depends to have on my hangover salty things because I'm normally very dehydrated, which is obviously why you're hungover. And then that impacts mm. your electrolyte balance, so you're kind of yeah. lacking salt. So uh, yeah. crisps and chips are my go-to, although I quite like yeah. having those when I'm not hungover <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a certain craving for your favourite foods, isn't there? Yeah, and just potatoes kind of just don't for sure um and also thing about alcohol is it it actually inhibits the pituitary gl gland secretion of an antidiuretic hormone so this hormone will act on the kidney to reabsorb water and what the alcohol does is prevent this from happening so therefore the adh levels drop the kidneys do not reabsorb as much water um and they produce more urine so that's why you pee all the time, but you also don't feel thirsty, but you actually should be drinking more because you're peeing out so much. 
and that's why you get so dehydrated. That's so interesting. I did not know mm. the science behind that. Yeah, shout out to A-Level Biology. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I did read about is uh, some random hangover cures, which I'm not sure whether I believe any of these. Um, That's okay. We can, we can uh, So here we, we go. Can see. One of them is Korean pear juice. Have you heard this before? Korean, Korean pear juice? Yeah. So this apparently no, has enzymes in it that can help to ease the hangover and I think you're supposed to drink that before you start drinking and then the other random one is asparagus and apparently there are amino acids in asparagus that can ease your hangover oh wow yeah I don't know if either of those are true but maybe we should try that next time maybe we should try that Uh, a trusty favorite of mine is very much hair of the dog I I find that it really works for me um and it only delays the symptoms Mm, I reckon. I terms, think it's more for like, you personally. Does you it's, think it works? It, it, it's it. It doesn't actually f- delay the symptoms. I think what it does is it makes it less hit, hit less hard. You're hit less hard by the symptoms. So you, so you, you're they're kind of prolonged over a longer period of time, and so it's 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 easier to bear. So if I've had a really heavy night out, and then I have a couple of drinks in the day, by the evening I actually feel fine. And I've felt good in the day because I've been a bit tipsy, if that makes sense. How long does your hangover normally last? Always until about 6pm. See, I don't have a cutoff. I need to have another night of sleep in order to feel better. I will still feel horrible at 10 o'clock at night. Fair. Hmm. And I've found out that the reason for this is that it's when your blood alcohol levels get to zero, that's when you have your peak uh, or your trough, as you could say, hangover symptoms and that's normally 12 to 14 hours after you've started drinking yeah other fun facts about hair of the dog is the reason it's called hair of the dog is that it comes from the idea that if you had rabies and you took a hair from the dog that bit you and applied it to your wound then you would no longer have rabies which is obviously not true but that's where it comes from a really cool fun fact Mm. okay my final question on this segment is I read a piece by Catelyn Moran on the Times and she described hangovers as a planned illness and therefore a mini holiday. And it's, it's, I'd really recommend reading this piece. It's really funny. She goes through the whole thing and she talks about the, the whole process and the steps of your hangover and how you sort of wake up and you, you don't get up until a certain time. Then you drink loads of orange juice because you think the vitamin C is going to help. Then you go and get on the leftovers. Then you watch Friends. And then when you have a shower, then everything gets better. What do you think of that, describing it as like a mini holiday? That, doesn't, that makes it sound so much nicer than it is. And I don't think I agree with that. Um, I suppose it is just an excuse to just do nothing isn't it i wish we could do that not having to be hungover though like i wish we could just say oh actually today i'm just gonna have a duvet day where i don't do anything yeah whereas sometimes essentially... it takes the excuse of a hangover for you to have a duvet day yeah because mm. you're physically incapacitated what mary and i else. did on saturday we watched the entirety of fleabag all season two curled up in a duvet we had some of her amazing vegan chocolate cake separate from the duvet because i didn't want to get it dirty <laughs> <laughs> what did you eat on your hangover day did you get pizza Uh, We had leftover pizzas, uh, cold leftover pizzas, which was not a nice idea. Um, And I had leftover risotto and I had cake. Yeah, sounds pretty good. What's your favourite hangover cure in terms of food? Oh, it so depends on what I'm craving. Uh, 
on Saturday we got we went to a McDonald's like drive through and I got a McFlurry and some chips. I quite like that. Um, um, like a Subway, like a big, like, like with lots of just like onion and fried things and bread and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when that's just, just bringing, salt and fat, bringing, basically. Bringing, <laughs> Bringing it back to hangovers at work as well, that can often be tricky because you can't eat what exactly what you want to eat because then you obviously have no. to go out of the office to get that. But I have yeah. queued to get yeah. chips at lunchtime for quite a long time on the occasion. Oh, patty and bun. Yes, patty and bun. <laughs> yeah, that is your fave, isn't it? It's my fave. The third figure that we're going to talk about today is the first image of a black hole, which is actually the shadow of a black hole. Good, d- good differentiation, because my physics teacher was really, really made sure that we knew that b- back in the day. I did not know that until I looked this up <laughs> for this episode. Um, I don't really know what black hole is still, and I've tried to look into GCSE notes so I'm hoping you can enlighten me on that but this is a galaxy 55 million light years away which is a number that just completely blows my mind I don't know how to get my head around that and the galaxy is called M87 I think that black holes are just a result of high speed collisions of different stars that then cause a big density um, in their debris and that's why you have so much like matter that doesn't allow anything to escape from it Okay, I still don't know that I understand that, but thank you for... And also, you know, a supermassive black hole is... So a supermassive black hole, which is the name of that song by Muse. Which is a great song. I listened to this while I was researching this and trying to get my head <laughs> well, around it. That, the, the image that we're looking at is, a super, is of a supermassive black hole. Um, and they're essentially just huge. To, they're like a big, a, the large type of black hole. This black hole that they've taken a photo of is 6.5 billion times bigger than the sun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hence the supermassive. There's more gra- there's more of a gravitational pull towards a black mm. hole. So the closer you get to a black hole, the faster you go to it. Yeah, it's okay. Scary. I actually, when I first learned about them, I was actually quite scared of them. I just thought, gosh, I hope I don't ever get into a situation where I'm careening towards a black hole because you, you're not going to come back. <laughs> no, you won't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, looking more at like quantum physics and like quantum theory and um, the the way that my physics teacher described a black hole was if you are traveling towards a black hole the time on your watch would appear to you as normal but you're actually going to if you were then to come back to earth it would be like 200 300 years in the future so time slows down the further you get to a black hole, if that makes sense. I just can't understand that. That is exactly the reason that I, I just... I feel like every concept of physics that is explained to me, <laughs> I don't understand you it. You need to ask Seb about that. He is literally the <laughs> physics, like, master and misses it. Yeah. I should have asked him yeah. on Friday. <laughs> so and, 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 it, and so essentially it's a region of space that you can't have anything can't things like nothing can escape from it like light time um radiation yeah. um and 
black holes are part of the sort of star lifestyle life cycle. Do you remember learning about that in physics? Okay. Vaguely. I basically did my physics GCSE as if I was learning a play and I learnt the lines and then regurgitated the information and understood zero of what I was writing down. <laughs> Um, but I have tried to get back into it for this episode and what I found more interesting actually is the whole um, the controversy around a second photograph which was of Katie Bowman who is the 29 year old computer scientist and she was one of the team leaders who was working on the algorithm that has made it possible for them to take this photograph and Essentially, the photograph shows her looking at this image and the delight on her face is just infectious. It's a really beautiful photograph, but that has sort of become the face of this whole event. And lots of people were saying, this is brilliant. You know, we need more more women in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering and maths. Is that what it stands for? Um, but then other people, especially trolls on the internet, were saying she's done 6% of the work and she's getting 100% of the credit. And this this whole storm was brewing and rising around her when it was so unnecessary. And I think it said a lot about the stereotypes that exist within... Um, like what a scientist well i guess the reason the reason it exploded is people were like i still think that the reason yeah the reason it exploded was still because it was a 29 year old female who was part of the team and so everyone was just that's like almost like twitter bait i mean everyone everyone will everyone will go mad about that and then because it went so viral that's when then the backlash was oh but she actually didn't do that much or this much or as much credit she's getting yeah, but the reason that she got so much attention in the first place is because there aren't enough female physicists, computer scientists, engineers in the first place. So it's just it's a bit annoying. Mm. I think it's unfair, though, because she was the first to call out this, that the media were putting too much of a spotlight on her. And Yeah, of course. It's just one of those things that sort of exploded. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, there were 214 scientists who were involved in this, 60 institutes and 18 countries. Um, and I watched her TED talk, actually. This is Katie Bowman's TED talk from 2016. And she explains, essentially, they needed to create an Earth-sized telescope in order to capture an image of a black hole. Because when something's that far away and that tiny, you need an enormous telescope. And she was... Yeah, it's, I think it's called an event event horizon telescope. Mm. And they used eight of them. yes. To collect the image. And they're all dotted around the world. Um, yeah. But she says in her TED Talk how essentially they needed to get the equivalent of an taking a photograph of an orange on the surface of the moon. That's how small and detailed wow. it is. Which is an incredible achievement. That's absolutely mind-blowing. Mm. But just to play devil's advocate, and I think this sort of shows my bias as well, that if you're not necessarily invested and interested in something, I don't sometimes see the point of spending so much money on it. What is your view on the amount of hours and money and work that goes into something like this project? I think it's just important to learn about 
and have an understanding about the universe that we live in and 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 why things happen and you know i guess you could argue it doesn't matter it's not really going to affect us but actually the the more we learn about other parts of the universe the more that we can kind of it's just an amazing marker of human ability isn't it to be able to sort of create something that can see see something like this i think it's an amazing mark of collaboration and and a team working together to do something that's never been done before that i think is incredible but i do mm. i can't help but question the resources that go into this and think mm. what what if they did something else but maybe that's just me being down on space travel <laughs> no no it's true it's a good point we i mean you know you could argue that about putting men in in space or man on the moon like what why do we need to do that if we we actually have so much we have so many problems on, on earth to, we've got so many things after, that we need yeah. to find solutions for on earth why are we looking so far outside of the earth i think that's what it makes me question true as always we love to hear from you um, in terms of feedback or any future figures that you would like us to talk about you can find us on twitter at figure podcast and on instagram at figure podcast and have a great week thank you for listening and i hope that this this first remote working remote working remote recording has worked we will be back next week bear with us um might be a bit of a learning curve a transnational uh podcast it's a bit of a learning curve but until then until next week bye bye